Libby Writes with Brian Scott Libby. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Friday? I am Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Rights Podcast. Today, we have Richard Cross, Sports Talk Mississippi, my old radio pal, on the program to a for a wide-ranging discussion, really. Talked to probably a little bit more baseball than I had intended. Um, talked about radio stuff, some spring football, Richard, called the spring game, and then his uh, broadcasting career and kind of how that's grown with ESPN, getting more assignments on basketball and now football as well, and a bunch of different other stuff. So good chopping it up with Richard as always. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Before we get to that, I want to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Glad you asked. They're the world's best gaming handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Football season will be here before you know it. Skybox NASCAR is up and rolling, crushing it over there with Mark Harris and Skybox NASCAR. You'll have football season right around the corner. You need to check these guys out. If you're into wagering, they're the only way to profit in the long run. You're going to have a picks package to fit your price range. All you have to do is go to skyboxsportspicks.com, type in their promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, and that'll get you 20% off any picks package you purchase. Try it for a day, a week, a month, whatever your preference is. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. They've also got some great merch in the shop there. Be sure to check them out at skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University at Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg if you're a Rippy Rights subscriber. That's rippyrights.substack.com. Get a free newsletter for me and discounted meats right now. It's a three six ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation you're getting there for 20 bucks. Go in there, show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you set up. Then go find all your own favorites. The best butcher shop in the world. All kinds of delicious cuts of meat, fresh seafood, sausages, tri-tips, and filet burgers are the uh, favorite of mine. Go find your own favorites. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, here is Sports Talk Mississippi's Richard Cross. All right, we now welcome on the man himself, my former co-worker, Richard Cross, host of Sports Talk Mississippi every Monday through Friday on Super Talk. Uh, I, what is it, 93.7 in Oxford? I don't know, a bunch of different affiliates. Um, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and I was like, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out how we're going to make it through this uh, this baseball season that uh, culminated in April. Let's talk some spring football, some broadcasting. How are things with you? Life's good, man. Um, it's been a been kind of a fun year. With uh, TV stuff, had a uh, a busier football season than I've had ever before. Got to do some Ole Miss stuff, but uh, also did ten American Conference games. So spent uh, spent some time in Orlando and Tampa and Philadelphia and Tulsa and you know a couple of other random outposts um, for games that nobody watches. But I'm still thankful to have a chance to uh, to get the call. Uh, and then basketball was good and uh, baseball season. So you have written off the baseball season? Like you're at, done? At 3 and 12, I do think I have written it off. Call me pessimistic, but at 3 and 12, I don't see them making the NCAA tournament. Okay. So the path is what 10 and 5 the rest of the way? No, I don't think with their RPI at 13 and 17, they're getting in. Do you remember last year they had kind of a bubblish RPI that granted, it's hard to gauge where it stands right now. I think it's in the 50s cuz they keep losing, but they were 14 and 16 and seemingly sort of got a favor despite being in the mix. Like, do you think 13 and 17 gets them in this time around? Have you looked at the SEC? I mean, D1 Baseball's latest projections have got 
five top eights and six hosts and ten teams in. I mean, they've got – D1's latest projections have got Mississippi State in. They've got Alabama in. I mean, look, is is it an easy road? Absolutely not. Is it likely? Of course not. But they're not dead. But, okay, so think about the schedule that's left, right? I mean, 15 games left in league play. You don't need a stupid loss in, in non-conference play, like an RPI killer that's in there. Um, so figure out a way to get one against LSU. LSU's clearly better than Ole Miss, but they're banged up on the mound, and they haven't swept anybody. They've played five SEC series. They've won two out of three and four of them. They split with South Carolina and had a rainout. So I, I can't remember the order for the rest of them, right? So it's Georgia, who's okay, but they're not good. they got four SEC wins. Auburn, who's 5-10 and 10 and is the only team in the SEC that has walked more players than Mississippi State has. Alabama, who's hmm? – I mean, I know Alabama swept Ole Miss in Oxford a year ago, but, I mean, are you scared of Alabama? No. Missouri, who looked really good when we thought Tennessee was good and they swept them to start the year, and they got four wins in the league. And who's the other one? I was trying to think of the same thing. There's got to be someone in between Georgia and Auburn, right? I know he didn't necessarily go to All right, so it, oh, it's LSU. I mean, it's LSU, Georgia, Auburn, Missouri, Alabama. Not, yeah, not in that particular order, but those are the five teams. So, so there's nobody in that schedule other than LSU this weekend where you're like, they got no shot. Now, they got no shot if they don't play better. They got no shot if they don't pitch better, if they don't you know, come up with some clutch hits along the way. But saying with those 15 games against those five teams, there's absolutely no path to 10 wins. Now, if two weeks from now, two weeks from now, right, let's say Ole Miss gets swept by LSU and they lose the series to Georgia, okay, it's over at that point. Then there's no path. But as we sit here today, what, Wednesday night before the LSU series starts, I don't think they're dead dead yet. Okay, that's fair. I just like I, I guess my more reason for pessimism is a lack of proof of concept. Like even when they struggled last year, they want to be like corporate guy now. Lack of proof of concept. Okay, I should that's a lot of time just, in copywriting and marketing world right there. That's just the private equity coming out in me. Not to not a big deal. I can read a pro forma <laughs> statement, but like I, last year they had struggled, right? But they had played in some games. They at least like won a road series at Auburn, who ended up making Omaha at the beginning of the year. Like I, I just I don't really see it with this team. Where last year I didn't think it really made sense that they were as bad as they were for that piece of it. Where this one, well, I don't think they should be this bad. It makes a little more sense. I, I just don't see from a pitching standpoint. And hell, at this point, man, I, I don't see how that offense turns it around enough to do what is needed. That's probably where more of my pessimism comes into play. Did Mason Nichols? in Jonesboro on Tuesday night mean anything? It's a start. It's one of those things where you file it away and it's like, okay, <clears throat> so. So, so like, I, I imagine this conversation happening. I don't know that it actually did. And, and Mike might look at us and be like, you idiots have no idea how we talk behind the closed doors. But I imagine Mike walking up to Mason Nichols and saying, you're going in. It's a tight game. We can't lose this game, and we can't win without you down the stretch. Now, go pitch. And he threw three three innings, 
in either a tie game or a one-run game, and he struck out four, and he walked one, and he gave up one hit. And I thought, that's the role that he played a year ago. And and maybe it's unfair what has been asked of Mason Nichols, right? Because he well, wasn't asked to shut the door at the end. It was Brandon Johnson that shut the door at the end. He wasn't asked to get outs number 24, 23, and 22. And maybe two more before that. That was Josh Mallett's. It was, we need you to be the bridge in a high leverage situation between whatever our starter can give us and the two guys that are absolutely going to shove at the end of the game. And then we all just expect, because he was really good in that role, and because the last thing we remember from Mason Nichols a year ago is him getting this unbelievable hold, stop, if you will, against Oklahoma in the College World Series. Like, this guy's ready to just shove against everybody. So maybe that was unfair. I mean, I, I could argue, and, and you might think I'm crazy. Colin might think I'm crazy for saying this. I could argue that Josh Mallett's injury is bigger than Hunter Elliott's. Oh, I, I don't think that's totally crazy at all. I mean, look, on the surface, I think like someone would hear that and just be like, what are you talking about? It's Hunter Elliott. But Mallett's was crucial because he could have played. How many a games does Ole Miss win this year that they have lost if Josh Mallett's is on this team healthy? Pitching the way he pitched at the end last year. Three more? Four more? Yeah, I'd probably say at least. And, like, I wouldn't be able to name, like, specific games because of how each of them played out. But the Mallets injury is, I think, is important because if Hunter Elliott gets hurt and Mallets is healthy, he's probably your starter. And you get to leave Jack Doherty. Talk about an unf- unfair role. I think you're, it's Nichols is one of them, kind of the trickle-down effect. But Doherty's another one. He's doing the best he can, but the guy's just not designed for that role. And, like, he hasn't been – you know, terrible, but in terms of like Friday night level production, it just is, it's not quite good enough, particularly when they're not getting a ton of run support. But yeah, yeah I mean, if Mallets is healthy, he's probably a pretty good starting option. But if nothing else, and you ended up going with Doherty as the starter in the absence of Elliott, you at least got a guy that can get outs, you know, behind Morrell. Um, and with the Nichols thing, you're right. It, it's not fair, but it's the reality of the situation there. And you know, sure. I mean? so like, it's just, I don't know. It feels like one. And, and Doherty, by the way, was. I mean, he was the best he's been since Omaha Friday night. He pitched great against Mississippi State. Yeah, he six did. Innings, six innings, one hit. I mean, you can't ask for any more than that. No, I mean, you almost won that game three to two, and it should have been seven to two. Yeah, they out hit him like twelve to two, and it was it was really mm-hmm. kind of a nail biter going down the stretch. So yeah, I guess technically not dead. I just I don't know. I'd have to see them kind of start performing better, and maybe get Elliott back this weekend, and things turn around. And I would even buy into it, even if they were you know, look as bad as they did, but we're somehow like five and 10. I mean, I can see this. It's just, I don't know. Three and 12 feels like a really daunting hole. That feels super deep. It does. It does. And and so it's not like, how are you getting to 15 and 15? How are you getting to host? It's how do you get to be the last team in for a second consecutive year? Once you got to go 10 and five. And I, I don't even think it's like, a, I don't even think it's like a nine and six where you get to 12 and then you go win three games at Hoover. I mean, I, I think you got to win 10 of your next 15 games in league play. And if you do, I think that's enough. And if you don't, then it's probably not enough. And it's certainly a disappointing year. And there are a lot of what-ifs because of injuries and whatever else. And you're trying to figure out how do you avoid this in uh, in 2024. What was the uh, what was it like, like on the show? Obviously, one of the things that you guys benefit from, and when I was on the show, same thing, is like – 
once basketball season ends, like it's not content dead season because this is a state that has two yeah. good college baseball program that cares about it. But with the start that Ole Miss and State got off to, I imagine there had to be a few moments where it's like, what is plan B here if both of these teams end up like in last place by mid-April? Like just pivot. Like it had to be a little bit concerning from a content standpoint. I mean, it, it is, but people care so much about baseball. I don't think you quit you quit talking about it. I mean if you're in New York and the Yankees go into a slide, now I'm not even pretending to tell you that we cover Ole Miss or Mississippi State the way New York media covers the Yankees, but it's not like they stop talking about the Yankees. Right. In fact, maybe the maybe it even gets ratcheted up. You know, if they're in in third in the NL East as opposed to first in the NL East, you know the the conversation is is hotter and maybe better for radio shows. We don't want that, right? <laughs> it's the the whole you've got a team that plays to the last week of June and carries a trophy off the field. That uh, that seems to be good for listenership, uh, and I hope that lasts forever. But we're probably spending a little more time on college football uh, than we normally would at this time of year. I mean, if if Mississippi State had been fourth in the country and Ole Miss had been eighth in the country going into that series last weekend, I mean, it would have been wall to wall for five days. As, as opposed, it was you know it was kind of sprinkled in here and there, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then you really kind of start focusing on it on Thursday. And then Friday, it's almost like we do a like a pregame show for, for three hours leading into the start of that series. And then, you know, all, all three coaches have continued to be great. I say all three, Scott Berry included from Southern Miss, and that, you know, he, he joins us on every Monday during baseball season. Scott Berry joins us in the 3 o'clock hour and Chris Lamonis in the 4 o'clock hour and Mike's in the 5 o'clock hour. All three of them have been really gracious with their time. I, I think even if they don't love doing it, they maybe realize that it's a, a good outlet to talk to fans. Some people think we don't ask hard enough questions. You know, there are relationships there, and so you kind of got to be careful about how you do it. But, you know, I think there's some interesting stuff in, in getting to talk to each of the three coaches. I, I can't imagine that there's another radio show in the United States that's that's doing that, you know, 15 times a year. Or, well, I guess 14 times a year when you, you think about it, and then some other interviews scattered in. So, um, you know, the access that we don't get for football, we actually do get for baseball, and I think that makes it kind of cool. Uh, and we have prided in our ourselves kind of in the, the coverage of college baseball for a really long time, and I hope that doesn't change. But I also hope that both teams start winning more. Yeah, no kidding. And Southern Miss has had a little bit of a troubling year too, right? I haven't been as locked into college baseball nationally, particularly the last month or so with Ole Miss's struggles. But have they had a down year too? I feel like they've had an injury or two and they were not as good as they advertised. Well, I mean, losing Hurston Waldrop to Florida didn't help. Yeah, um, that does not help. You know, if, if not for that, they've got maybe the best rotation in America, which is crazy. Uh, they've been okay. Uh, they're projected as a two seed in Gainesville. Uh, okay, so they're not that, that they're not that bad. Then they're still on. No, track. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. They got a huge series this weekend. They um, they are currently one game out of first place in the Sun Belt. Um, that's good league. They are headed to Coastal Carolina this weekend. The tough question criticism always cracks me up. It's like fans want to like almost like you to inject like their emotions into a question. Like what what tough what, whose feet are you holding to the fire in a 10 minute radio phone or like you, what do you they want you to say like hey coach why do you guys suck? Yeah, and I mean look, I mean the the truth is there are relationships involved here. Um 
Chris Lewis's first year at Mississippi State, I I asked a question or, or kind of made a statement that was, I mean, I intended it to be just as like there was no agenda there whatsoever, and I don't think he liked the way that that it came out, and it was along the lines of you know with the roster that you inherited, you you kind of you get handed the keys to a Ferrari, and yeah. it's like, hey, go don't run this thing off the road. And it was almost like I was like taking a shot at his coaching ability or the way he was managing games or what. And that was, that was unintended. It was almost like, man, guys don't get this opportunity to walk in. Normally when you get a head coaching job, either the previous coach got a better gig. And so they were moving up or they sucked and they got fired. Your situation is different. I, I guess the previous coach got a better gig, but it's the athletics director. He's your boss and he just hired you. And this is a great roster. And it's a, you know, a roster that's built to go, you know, compete. And, and so that was what I intended. So maybe there's a little bit of a rocky relationship there, but I, I think that's been good. And what? I know Mike Bianco for 23 years. I, I, I did games on the radio the very first year that he was the head coach at Ole Miss. I watched his kids grow up. I think the world of his wife – I'm just going to be like an ass to him on the radio because I'm not sure he made the right decision in terms of who he went to out of the bullpen in the bottom of the seventh. I, I, I don't think that's so. So maybe that's the background, right? I mean, the relationships are real. I also happen to think he's a really good coach, and I think that kind of bore itself. If you didn't believe that it had borne itself out over the previous two decades. I think last June probably got you on board. It's like the guy kind of knows what he's doing. And it's a little bit of a crapshoot to get out of a super regional, to get to Omaha, and certainly to win it all. And like all of the people who said, who had been anti-Mike Bianco, and and that's fine, right? I mean, if you thought he had taken it as far as he could possibly take it, and it was time to give somebody else a chance, that's fine. But all of those people, when it came to an end, said, you know what? give him a lifetime contract, he's earned the right, he can stay as long as he wants, build the statue, blah, blah. Now, I get that we all have short memories, but all of those people said those things. I've never been happier to be wrong in my life. I'd trade it all for, you know, whatever. All that happened. They've had some injuries, they've had some bad breaks, they haven't played well at times, maybe they didn't do enough in the transfer portal, whatever, they won a trophy last year. A freaking national championship in baseball. You know how hard that is to do? We spent 22 years talking about how hard it is to do and watching other people do it, and then Ole Miss gets one. The year after Mississippi State gets one. I don't know. I mean, it's like – I think it's just brain it's really brains. All right, Mike's whole thing before he had the postseason success was, well, his teams are never sucked. They're always good. They're always in the mix despite the lack of postseason success. Then they kind of suck in the regular season – get hot and win the whole thing, and then they're not good in the regular season the next year, then I feel like people's brains are just in a corrective pretzel and they don't know exactly how to react to this. So which would you rather have? Well, I think everyone would tell you the trophy and sucking in the regular season, but then, you know, they say no, that. No, 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 I mean, I mean, the there there was never the up and down, right? There was never the high, the low. It wasn't a roller coaster. It wasn't. You get to a super, you get to Omaha, then you miss the postseason for two years. And it, it was just steady. Oh, I see. I'd rather have the Anko consistency. You, you, so you win 16 every single year, 
and then you have a bump and you get 17 and you get 18 and then you drop down to 14, but you never, you never have a, a bottom out season or you win a national championship and then you follow it up with a three and 12 start to league play. I think this year's probably the proof that you would rather have the consistency, isn't it? Because everyone is so unaccustomed to them being kind of out of the mix this early in SEC play. I know we just covered they're not literally dead yet, but it's very frustrating for people to watch on a game in game out basis. And so I think that like this season is under, like proof enough of just how consistent Mike was and how enjoyable that was, despite the postseason frustrations, because you were never an afterthought in the regular season. You were always in the mix until June. Maybe I'm selfishly looking at that as a content perspective, but I think this year kind of underscores that you'd probably rather have the consistency. Versus a national championship. Well, it's weird because they got both. <laughs> Like you got the consistency and following that. Yeah, but you but but last year you didn't have the consistency, right? Last year was the five and ten after fifteen games, seven and fourteen after twenty-one games, and then they win seven of their final nine in the regular season, and they think they've missed the tournament with losing a game on a Tuesday in Hoover that nobody gives a crap about, and so they sit around and they're sad, and then all of a sudden they get in and holy cow, don't let the Rebs get hot, and next thing you know they're carrying a trophy off the field. Yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons to both of it, but I'd rather just have a seat at the table every year because it at least gives you the hope. You know, in some of those down years, you're not even selling hope, and that's kind of largely what all this stuff is about. It's like, hey, give me a chance, give me, let me get in the mix. So, I don't. So, so I listened to you and Colin the whatever the last show you did Sunday night, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I thought he made a pretty. Colin doesn't always make great points, but I thought he made a pretty good point here, where he's like, "It really sucks having a bad team." That's what I'm getting at. Like, it really, like, it's kind of like, like being irrelevant sucks. And you basically went two decades without having that. What Mike missed the tournament three times in 20 years. Is that three? One of those was a COVID year. Yeah, and the other one was what, like 11 or 11 or 12, and then the other one was like 03, which is like the second year he was here. So, which was uh, it was a year that I got ejected from a uh, stadium as a fan. What'd you do to deserve that? Um, Alabama was hosting the women's gymnastics super six in Tuscaloosa. And so Friday night's game got moved up to two o'clock on a Friday afternoon. And okay. um, there were a, um, there was a small group of us that went over and uh, I mean, what are you going to do with them? Friday afternoon baseball game in the SEC. Ole Miss went into that like I think Alabama was like second and Ole Miss was fourth or something like that. Okay. And Alabama kind of led for the entire game. And this group of a handful of us might or might not have brought some beverages into the stadium. As and, one does. Uh, as one sometimes does. And uh, by the seventh inning there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 or 40 beer cans that are at our feet in the bleachers down the third baseline. And Ole Miss takes the lead. And maybe there's a hotty toddy that gets started and Alabama fans don't take well. I mean, it's not, there's like 1,500 people there. On uh, You know, it's like, they, they don't care about baseball. Well, somebody did. And so a security guard comes walking over and, you know, again, there are like 10 of us there. And he's like, are these yours? And I'm, I'm like, yes, sir, they are. At least you owned it. Yeah, but but it's it's not me. It's like ten people, and it's like all of the cans right here are just kind of at the feet of it. 
yes, th- those are mine, actually. He goes, come with me. And so I walk out. I said, I, I put my arm around the security guard, and which he didn't like. And I said, hey, I got a question. Um, are you just asking me to leave the stadium or are you taking me to jail? <laughs> he said, sir, you're going to need to leave. There is uh, – the, the, you're not allowed to bring your own drinks into the stadium. I said, yes, sir. So I walk outside the stadium. I walk around the outfield fence. There is a camera platform, like a scaffolding, straightaway center field behind the outfield wall. There's a rusty chair sitting up there. I climb the scaffolding, and I sit on this chair beyond the center field wall and watch the last two innings of the game. So you got singled out. It wasn't just like, are these yours as in like y'all's? You're the only guy taking the fall. Not yet. Yeah, it wasn't like, are these yours? All of you are leaving. It was like, are these yours? I was like, "Uh, yes, sir. I mean, Gary Darby, Gary Darby was doing the radio with David Kellum at the time. And he, um, he watched the whole incident play out and actually mentioned it on the radio, like through his binoculars. I don't think he called me by name. And then we talked about it. He's like, what, what happened? And I told him, he's like, hmm. he's like, was that you sitting out on the, the center field scaffolding? I was like, it, it was. I'm I'm shocked that the hired security didn't like you putting his arm around him. I mean, did you thank him for his service and say, you know, you mall cops are the real heroes here, call him chief? Like, I, I, I'm i shocked he didn't love that move. I asked him if he, you know, if he served in Iraq, and I think he did. And, you got a badge in the desk? Yeah, I'm just, just making it up at this point. Uh, yeah, so that was a long time ago. That was a great weekend. Ole Miss got two out of three. They moved to second or third or fourth in the country after that weekend, and then I don't think they won a game the rest of the year. And missed the tournament. Wow. Mike's in the I mean, other year he had that. No, never mind. That 08 year they made the tournament. Remember there was that one year they got to like second in the country and totally bottomed out. I think they ended up making the tournament, but they had a real bad streak that year. But to your point, like they've had very few of those. That is very seldom over a two-decade career. They're always good and they're always in the mix. Rippy, you know how stupid I was that weekend? I had never had a credit card prior to that point. Almost won two out of three in Tuscaloosa that weekend, and I was convinced that the Rebels were going to Omaha, and I had no idea how I was going to pay for it, and I applied for my very first credit card. Uh, that's just free money. You know, credit card's not real. You just swipe that thing, and you don't have to worry about it. The Rebels did not go to Omaha, but the credit card still got used, and somewhere along the way I looked up and I was like, what just happened? This is not free money at 17.9%. I was about to say, but if you pay it back, you start building up a credit score, it's all good. It's a, it's a fiscally responsible move if you're paying that sucker back. My dad wasn't a banker. I, I uh, probably should have learned how important late payments were in terms of credit history. Yeah, you learned that at a young age, right? You're like, you're not going to be late, Rip. Yes, exactly. I, I One of the benefits of, of having a banker as a dad is I learned that very, very, uh, very, at a very early age. So, baseball aside, hey, have statue of limitations expired? Your mom's not going to sue me anymore. That that's gone away, right? For depends the Pringles, on what the Pringles incident. Oh yeah, yeah. Statue of limitations. I still get people message me about that time and time again. Um, you have some people on a car road trip that take one of those mini cans and they think it's the same thing, and they're like, "Look, I did it." I'm like, "No, you didn't." No, you didn't. But yeah, I still get texts about that. Uh, probably a couple times a year. Um. Mm-hmm. Talk about summer content. Wasn't that in the middle of the summer? We were definitely trying to fill the void till football because I'm pretty sure I missed two segments to go buy them at the gas station and came back. I don't think that was a hot button topic day in terms of content. I think I left the studio to go buy it 
and then came back, if I remember correctly. True statement. True statement. Yeah, I still can't really look at a can the same, particularly not the regular ones. I just feel like, I don't know, like it's just that potato scent makes me want to throw up. Um, it was like the saltines challenge on steroids. <laughs> uh, what's the saltines challenge? So there's that I, – We I as a kid, it was like there's only a certain amount of saltines you can eat because it, like, takes all the saliva out of your mouth. So I go, it's easy. I could eat eight saltine crackers in 30 seconds, and you actually like, literally can't. Like, you'll start, like, choking on it. Like, apparently there's a set number you can eat in, like, a minute or 30 seconds or something because it's so, like, dry or whatever. Okay. So that I've was, not, like – I've not tried that. How about a gallon of milk? Can you do that? No, that sounds awful. That's just asking for people do that. Why, why would you do that? Like a gallon of milk in three minutes or something like that. Even if you did it, you would feel horrible for like a long time, wouldn't you? I would think, but I don't know that Pringles make you feel great either. No, no, it didn't, but that subsided after a few hours. I, I think I've like by nine o'clock that night, uh, you know, when it had moved to the time to exit the Pringles type of thing, I felt a little better. I feel like that milk thing would linger for a long, long time. Like, <laughs> you can get super sick with a gallon of milk in that. Like, I don't know. That that almost sounds worse. I, I'm probably not going to try that. But you get Hey Dad to do that. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't do milk. I was a you beat me to the punch. I was about to say he's probably one of those weirdos that has something against milk. So we do a, a morning production call. 8:30-ish. He's not a super early riser. I call him one morning and Hey Dad has, uh, he answers. It's like a FaceTime, you know, little three way FaceTime call. And uh, Borky hadn't gotten on yet. And he's sitting there in his, you know, like completely stereotypical hairs going everywhere. He's got like an oversized t shirt on. And he's sitting there in his lazy boy in the living room. He's got a bowl of cereal and he's, he's eating his cereal. I was like, oh, what you got there? He's like, oh, Captain Crunch. Or I'm making the cereal. I don't know what the cereal is. Maybe it's, Raisin bran, whatever. It's crunchy, man. He's like, well, yeah, no milk. I was like, oh my God. Wait, 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 hold on a second, hold on a second. You got no milk on your He's like, I don't drink milk. I was like, hold on a second. You're a psycho. I was like, I don't have a problem with the fact that you don't have milk. Yeah, I'm cool with that. Like, hold on. You have cereal in a bowl that you are eating with a spoon with no milk. There's something wrong with you. Yeah, there is. Because, like, my uh, MC thinks I'm weird because I my mom always made us drink milk growing up, like the whole build strong bones thing. But I do get it. Like, if people don't like, like, drinking a glass of milk, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't mind a glass of milk, but I'm okay with that. And then also don't even mind the dry cereal, but you eat that like it's chips. You know, you yes, 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 out of a cup. Like a snack. Out of a but, cup. No spoon. But no the, bowl. The, the spoon with the dry cereal. Well, why? Like, why would you want to do such a thing? It's like, what do you got? Oh, I got some cinnamon toast crunch here, dry with a spoon and a bowl. You're psycho. I, I told him after that. I was like, look, man, I got to be honest. I was like, I love you. Like, I, I love Ryan Hey, Dad. I, I, I think a lot of him. He's a good person. He's got a good heart. I know he's a Mississippi State guy, whatever. He, he's never hidden that. And like, he, I, I think the world of him. I told him, I was like, do you know how interesting of a human case study you would be? Yeah. And people wouldn't believe it. Like, like if a legitimate PhD psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever, like followed you and did like an in-depth 
case study on who you are as a person, you are one of the most fascinating people I've ever been around in my life. He's and I learned something new about him. Stories like, from like being a pizza guy and then the random knowledge on W or professional wrestling and other topics. He's he's really just like the Dosecki's man that should probably be studied. Yeah. I guess. He's not an early riser. I, every time the credit to him, I love Haydad too. I'm not bagging on him, but he has a job that affords him this. But like I think of that stepbrother scene where they're at the end. And they're trying to finally go back to being kids. And the guy's like, I'm miserable, man. I had to wake up at 10 o'clock this morning. I'm like, that's, that's hate that. <laughs> you had some hotel room experiences with him, didn't you? I did. We, uh, we roomed together for a couple of different events. Um, I guess I woke him up every morning. I never thought twice about it, but it's not like I'm like, you know, blendering smoothies at 6 a.m. Like I, I'm 8.30 going to get my coffee. So if I woke him up, I, I don't feel as bad about it. But yes, we, we were roommates. We did not share beds or anything. Would you have been the big spoon or the little spoon? I prefer not to think about such things. <laughs> you know, this podcast sponsored by BetterHelp, we'd probably have to fire that one up and just open up a whole new bag of issues if that, that got to that point. Um there was one time, though, where we only had one bed. By the way, it's not – oh, hold on a second. I, I want to hear that story. It's not surprising that you only asked me to, like, visit with you every two or three years. I understand I completely Was it two years it. last time? I thought we'd check in, like, once a year. I guess it was two years. I don't know, man. I like, We were in a different house at the time, and that was – that would have been two years in July. I guess that so, was two was, summers ago. Sorry. I'm but baseball mad. carried us so far last year, and then I like took a month hiatus as I moved to Oxford, and then all of a sudden it was football season again. It's like going to be the polar opposite this year. So yeah, and, and and I appreciate that you only reach out when it's like you have absolutely nothing else to talk about. There's no other guest that you can possibly get to say yes, and you're like, hey, Richard will just talk. Truth be told, I've weirdly caught a bunch of your. I say weirdly, I caught a, I felt like a strange number of your basketball broadcast and the spring game. So that's actually what thought of it. Like you're not an F-list celebrity in terms of this pod. I, for whatever reason, caught a strange number of your broadcast this year. I don't really know how that lined up. Probably speaks to you just moving up the ranks. We'll get to that in just a second. You want to hear that one bed, hey dad thing for, real quick before we get back to a real topic? Yes, you and hey dad in one bed. I want to hear that story. I think he was in Hoover, and I think there was only one bed available. And hey, Dad's like, give me the look. Is like, what are we going to wrestle? Rock, paper, scissors? Like, kind of like, do we split it? And he didn't even have to say anything. I was like, I'll take the couch. I'll take the couch. I just removed myself from the situation. And he was like, that was nice of you. And I was like, well, was it? Did I really have a choice? Yeah. That's- what, what if you had gone with an alternate plan? What if you had been like, you know what? You take the bedroom. I'll take the bathroom. That wouldn't work. The first time he had to go to the bathroom, guess who's just woken up in their own little room? That's just that wouldn't work unless I made him like pee in a cup or pee outside. I, I don't really know. I don't think that would have worked. You could you could have said you can use the lobby bathroom and you can have the bedroom, or you can sleep on the couch. I don't think he'd have gone. I don't for think that. he would have gone for that. No, no but, shot. I, I I don't think so. So I was like, you know what? I can fit on this couch better. I don't even want to like think of the idea of a potential pillow wall. I'm just going to take the couch and we are uh, we're going to be done with this situation. So the pillow wall <laughs> that would that would there's no way in hell that would have ended well. So all right, getting to the broadcasting side of it, you called the spring football game this weekend. Um, 
uh, we Weldon and I talked a little bit about on a podcast that hasn't dropped yet. We'll we'll drop by the time people are listening to this about kind of like how how we perceive spring games and how different they've become in the last six seven years. Remember we had that phase like eight nine years ago where it was people bragging about attendance records. And I feel like for the most part, like spring games were like actual, basically, you know, line up one side, line up another, do a glorified scrimmage. Yes. They limit the contact, but I feel like in the last six, seven years, it's become more of a tricked up coaches get created with the systems and all that from a broadcasting standpoint, what goes into calling a spring game? Do you get time with the co- the coaching staff before what goes into the production of calling a spring game? So I've done two uh, and it's the last two years. So last year I had the Auburn spring game. Okay. I did that one with Cole Kublik. Um, There obviously were a lot of storylines from Brian Harson from the way the previous season had ended. Um, Cole had a good relationship with, with Harson, so, so that helped. We talked in uh, – yeah, we talked, with, we talked with coordinators and Harson, so we spent some time with coordinators in a conference room, and then we sat for – 45 minutes or so of Brian Harson in his office. And we talked through the entire off season stuff and the timeline and what he thought about it. And like, you couldn't help but like the guy. Sure. When, when you, when you knew the backdrop of kind of what his family had been through, but even then you knew that, I mean, the writing was on the wall. Um, and so you're trying to figure out how you can, because you got about a two hour window. I mean, it's a, it's a two hour TV window. And so you're trying to, figure out how you can do something compelling. Now, if you've got Florida in a 10-7 game last week, I don't know how you can really be compelling on that. But for the Auburn game last year, they agreed to let us be on the field. And so Cole and I were on the field behind the offense for the entire game. We called the entire game from the field. There's some novelty there, and then, you know, offensive drive, offense scores a touchdown, Cole would go up, he would ask two or three questions to Harson. It wasn't like a deal where we had him mic'd up for the entire time. And, and so that's kind of how we got through it, and it was it was okay. I mean, I, I thought it turned out okay. This year was entirely different for, for Ole Miss. Um, we do coaches' interviews Friday afternoon. Uh, Pete Golding, which we should probably talk about that. That guy is Wow. Like, Heard he's great wow. in that setting, like a wizard type thing. Like that's cool. basically how he got the Alabama gig, like the white board, that type of setting. I I have you, I've done a couple of interviews this week and and have I needed a football thesaurus after it was after it was over. Like I mean, I kind of like feel like I kind of know football. I mean, I'm not like Cole Kubelik or you know Weldon or Pete or any of these guys. But the more time you spend like around I, people like that, you pick up on more stuff. Yeah, and and I walked away from that, and and I didn't say it immediately. Chris Dewaring was who I worked with, and uh, we were talking Saturday before the game. I was like, man, I'm sure you understood everything that he said, but I'm, I'm just going to be honest. I walked away from that going, that was really impressive, and about 40% of what he said, I have no idea what he was talking about. He said, Richard, he said, I've been in football my entire life, and there were things that he said where I had to like really either slow down and go, wait, what? Or I still don't know what he's talking about. I was like, that makes me feel so much better. But, you know, set that aside a second. So we talked to Pete, we talked to Charlie Weiss Jr. And then we have half an hour with Lane and he was really good and really engaging. You never know exactly how he's going to be. And he was great. 
we honestly didn't talk a ton of football. We talked more kind of big picture stuff and hot yoga and fishing and family and selling his house in Boca and all of those good things. But he was pretty engaged and there were, there were some football nuggets that were mixed in with that. Um, but I, I guess the point is the, the old Miss spring game was wildly entertaining. It was 53, 52. There's nothing else you can ask for. You got a, you, you got two hours of offense. Now it slowed a little bit at the end when they were trying to kind of manufacture a game tying drive with Jackson Dart and they put seven points on the board and all that good stuff. But in terms of, like broadcasting and the quality of it, it was great. And, and you know, we had some storylines we wanted to get in. So so we want to talk about the quarterback story. We want to talk about Quinchon Judkins. We want to talk about Prescorn and and uh, Michael Trigg, you know, tight end battle. We want to talk about Pete Golding and kind of what he brings and why that made sense from Alabama. Um, you know, offensive line, a little bit more depth there. Uh, what they've got to do in the transfer portal on D. So, so we've got, you know, half a dozen, maybe 10 storylines that were like, okay, if things slow down, we can get to, or uh, based on something that happens in the game, we're ready to jump in this particular direction. Michael Trigg makes a catch. Let's talk about tight ends. Let's talk about Priestcorn, what he did at Memphis, how this rotates, and what Charlie Weiss Jr. said about we're going to get our five best skill position players on the field. Quinshawn Judkins is going to be one of those guys, and we don't care who the other four are. If it's Priestcorn and Trigg and two percent. So it's like, okay, we've got a plan on how we're going to get to this stuff, but then the game's entertaining, and it just kind of it kind of carries, and you're able to weave that stuff in and out. And it seems like that was a concerted effort by Kiffin to make it that way on purpose. Like, given what he like, it seemed like he kind of took a look of like he knows what spring games are at this point. So to make it an entertaining kind of offensive showcase to let him interview you on the field, that type of stuff, it seemed like he had a kind of a conscious effort to we need to manufacture some entertainment here from what could otherwise be a pretty mundane <laughs> spring formality. I don't think there's any question. I think he understands that you know you might as well make it fun for fans because who gives a crap about a 10 to seven spring game or a seven to three or a 17 to 10 people want to see points. They want to see quarterbacks. They want to see the ball in the air. They want to see playmakers making plays. You want to try to stay healthy. You can be creative and kind of play fast and loose with the rules if you want to, as it goes along. But yeah, he's in the entertainment business. He knows that. Um, And, you know, he's not afraid to get some shots in Jimbo. He did that early. Uh, use Chris I call that one kind the of, Chris Marshall inside receiver, uh, inside official thing. How good was that? Do you honestly like it's so like routine for him now? He, it, what was surprising to me was he like actually like kind of walked it back. Do you think that that was most of ninety nine? I would say percent of the time when he says something like that, I think it's on purpose. Do you think that one actually might have been unintentional? Because it's kind of against his nature to kind of walk it back. Because the second after he said that, he was like not to disparage any other programs or whatever the hell he said. And I was like, maybe this just was so second nature to him. It just slipped out without him even thinking. No, no, no. The, the not to disparage other programs is part of the shtick. You think, oh, so you, you think that 100%, was percent its own way. 100% because he knew Jimbo was going to eventually get hold of it and say something back to him. Yeah, not to disparage anybody else, but I mean, you know, we, we got to teach this guy that, uh, you know, it may not have been the way it was at your other program, but when you catch a 12-yard pass for a first down, we're trying to get it to the inside official so we can snap the ball again. Now, I understand when you're in a place where you huddle every play and you've got 35 seconds between plays, maybe you've got time to do a happy dance. We don't do it that way here. We're going to have to coach that out of him. 
Yeah, I mean, he basically said that he came from a place where they're allowed to celebrate every reception or something. I was like, which oh, isn't true, but it was just a way to take a shot at the slow, methodical plotting pace that A and M plays with. And more so just Jimbo. That does seem intensely personal. You know, he has some that are more like playful ribbing, like he playfully ribs Brian Kelly. I, I don't think he likes the Jimbo. Th- like, I, I don't think he likes him genuinely. And and the thing is, I think they at one point had a fine relationship. But the ridiculousness with which Jimbo has decided to run that program, where he pretends like they don't use NIL while paying $25 million to a recruiting class, it's like – it's like what – why, why does this make sense in your mind? Like, why, why do you approach your program this way? Why wouldn't you embrace it? We've got a great university with great facilities. We're going to give you NIL opportunities that people don't have anywhere else, and we're trying to win a championship. Nobody talks about it. But he's like, oh, no, no, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't do that. Yeah. He said there is no fund after that initial uh, class that everyone ragged on. I can't remember if that was last year or year before last, but he said th- there is no $30 million fund. There is no fund. It's like, dude, come on, man. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Texas A&M is the first school that has kind of officially rolled their collective into their foundation. Yeah. And the NCAA was like, hey, we've got some questions. Are you sure you want to do this? And they're like, yeah, we're doing it. Come at me, bro. That's what A&M said to the NCAA. And speaking of that, this is probably a topic for another day, but like on quick on that sidebar. Well, hey, we can talk about it in two years. Yeah, exactly. I'll catch you in 2025. Uh, Florida sold their collective. Did you see that? I haven't. It's one of those things I bookmarked and I'm going to read into it when I have like, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes to kill to figure out what the hell this is. Sold a collective like it's an asset? Like what? what, how, How does that work? So Andy Staples was on Sports Talk Mississippi with us last week, and he talked a little bit about it. I, I didn't necessarily pick up on that they sold it, but there was a consolidation, and it's more kind of in line with their foundation, and okay. everybody's pulling in the right direction because they were kind of like splintered factions. Uh, like there was this collective that promised one thing and another collective that was more aligned with the university – and they were supposed to kind of carry this stuff out. And there was going to be like a money transfer. And somewhere along the way, the guy that's like, yeah, I'll give $13 million for Jalen Rashada. I was like, yeah, I'm not giving $13 million for Jaden Rashada. And the whole thing just kind of fell apart. They, they've kind of gone through a bit of a reorganization. So I don't know if it's really a true no sale, but, but a reorg. So that was a misleading headline is what it was. Because that's really no different than what Ole Miss did to some degree, where they all kind of got on the same page with the same collective. Yeah. And basically everyone started rowing in the same direction. But I saw that headline. I was like, sold the collective? Like, to who? Like, wait, wait. I didn't know these collectives had, like, actual valuations, like companies. I thought this was supposed to be, like, you know, a nonprofit or whatever the other category is that I can't think of right now. Like, what do you mean you sold it? Which was crazy to me. So – what did you make of the quarterback competition and where that stands after talking to Kiffin, going through the spring game and all that? Where do you kind of stand on what do you think this actually is in terms of a competition? I mean, I think Jackson's a starter. Um, I think Neil has detailed in, you know, uh, over and over and over that, that he believes and has been told that Walker Howard was led to believe that he was going to be the backup. And so I just – I wonder where that leaves Spencer. If if somehow Ole Miss goes into fall camp with those three guys in the quarterback room, Chris um, Doring said this on our our show on 
Wednesday of this week. It's like Ole Miss may have the most talented quarterback room in college football. Yeah. Now, there are obviously questions in other places, but when you talk about, okay, Jackson Start, who started games at Southern Cal and is a returning starter with 20 touchdown passes at Ole Miss, Walker Howard, who's a former five-star who left LSU because of a numbers game because he didn't want to be the number three guy behind not just Jaden Daniels but also Garrett Nussmeyer, and um, Spencer Sanders, who's the second all-time leading passer at Oklahoma State. He's got like 50 starts and has thrown for 60 touchdowns and, you know, 9,000 yards through the air and a couple of thousand yards rushing. I mean, it'd be kind of hard to argue with that. I, I don't know how you keep all three of them, but if they do, wow. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. And one of the things that the I didn't necessarily know what Kiffin's motive was. Other, I mean, obviously, clearly it's to bring you know more competition in. I think it was probably to push Dart a little bit. But I couldn't pinpoint my finger on it. And I basically, like, listening to him talk throughout the spring – I think I actually take him at face value that it probably wasn't anything more complicated than we're trying to get the most depth at every position possible. Quarterback's no different. We're just collecting assets over here. We need the most amount of good players at every position. Quarterback's no different. And after hearing the way he's described that and the way he thinks about it, I actually tend to take him at face value on that. I don't think there was really any more deep thinking involved in that other than, sure, if Spencer Sanders wants to come here, we'll take him. Awesome. Sure. And, and I thought Spencer Sanders did some really good things. At one point in the broadcast Saturday, I said, all right, grade the three quarterbacks. I, I said that to, to Chris Dory. And he said, you know, with Jackson Dart, I mean, you know, B plus. I mean, he's completed a bunch of passes. He's kind of gotten outside of the pocket. Been a couple of drops in the game. You know, returning quarterback. He's seemingly a different player than he was a year ago. In one turnover in all of spring practice, whatever that means. I don't know if that means in scrimmages or seven on seven or or whatever, but he was really good with the football. Charlie Weiss Jr. told us that he was um, spent a lot of time focused on footwork in the off season, you know, trying to get more consistent with his footwork, better with his drops. I think an area that he's got to get better is, is especially on the deep post. He's got to get some more air under that ball down the middle of the field. Uh, he had one pass in the, in the spring game where he, he missed a receiver should have been a touchdown and and he got a little too greedy with it. It threw a little too much zip on, a little too flat, as opposed to laying it out there and letting a guy go get it. Um, but you know, if you got a returning quarterback that I know it didn't end well, but they won eight games and he threw for twenty nine hundred yards, and I mean, and, and improved. I mean, I asked Charlie on Friday. I said, "All right, so mid November to mid April, how has how is Jackson Dart different?" He said he's completely different. I said, yeah, but how? And he started kind of outlining some of the, the things that we just talked about. And he said he's just completely in control. His teammates trust him. He understands what we're trying to do. It's just a, a, a complete maturation process. And he's better in everything that he does. Walker Howard, that's big-time arm talent. And Seems I thought as good as advertised in terms of the quarterback of the future thing. Yeah. I mean – Two of the three touchdown passes he threw, I thought were incredible, where he kind of got flushed, pushed out to the right side. Once he dropped it, kind of threw it up, let Ulysses Bentley run underneath it. I can't remember who caught the other one, but another one where he kind of let it develop, threw it up, and let it got run underneath it in the end zone. When you combine the kind of arm talent with the kind of touch that he's got, I think you're onto something special. He's still learning, though. I mean, right? He's, what, four months into to this offense and, and what it means, and I think the future is really, really bright with Walker Howard. 
And then Spencer Sanders, I mean, how, how can you not be impressed with what he did? A guy who's had limited reps is getting, recovering from a shoulder injury. I thought he threw the deep ball pretty well. He he underthrew the one where he had the interception. Made some great plays with his feet. Showed you what he can do on the open field where they they ran the uh, what was it a reverse pass or or whatever where they, they they get it to him down the field. He's a really dynamic athlete. That there is kind of an embarrassment of riches at that position. We'll see what it looks like when we when we get to September. But it's all the other spots where you're looking at. I think there's some depth on the offensive side. They got to get better on defense, and they got to get better on defense by getting people. I was about to say they just got to get more dudes. The Woden made a decent, uh, a good point that I hadn't thought about from the quarterback perspective last night. Is I brought up the fact that Kiffin and Dart mentioned multiple times about Dart only turning the football over once during the spring. You're like, what does that mean? I'm kind of the same thing. Like, what does that actually mean? But clearly it's something they value because Kiffin brought it up, Dart brought it up to kind of reiterate the confidence he has in himself. And that was one issue that plagued him last year, right? Decision-making. Why throw that mm-hmm. pass? I think at the interception against Georgia Tech, a couple others. It's like, hey, what are you doing here? Like, just chuck it away, live to play another day. And the other one is the deep ball. He struggled to take the top off of defenses by, as you put it, more air under the ball, right? Like it just, the deep balls weren't great. And so I wonder if there's an element of that because Sanders from everything I've read and like, it's not like I can actually turn on Spencer Sanders tape and be like, yeah, this kid's awesome at this or that. Like, I just don't know football that well, but from everything I've read, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag with him on the deep ball. He looks awesome at it at times and not so awesome. Yeah. At others. I wouldn't say dart looked awesome deep ball wise at times. That has to be an element of why they brought in Sanders of just like, okay, you know, they're kind of similar prospects. He's an older guy. But at the end of the day, if Ole Miss is going to be – Levy's not here anymore, but I still think they want to score from far. They didn't do that last year. That's a major piece of this offense that whatever quarterback wins the gig, I would probably lean Dart. They're going to have to be able to hit that with some consistency because that sure just didn't happen last year at all. Yeah, and, and who is the guy going to be that can – you know, on the other end? Right, so there's two parts right. to that. It's 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 throwing it, and it's also going to catch it. I didn't think that they had the guy who had the ability to separate, uh, you know, down the field in the in the passing game from a receiver standpoint. They they trust Jordan Watkins. Chris Marshall showed that there is a lot of upside there from a talent standpoint. We still have still haven't seen Trey Wallace. Jalen Knox popped a little bit. You hope that he can stay healthy. Um, you know, Trigg made a couple of incredible individual effort plays. The, the, the ball where he was – he had already kind of like his body had gone to the ground and he like somehow reaches up and snatches the ball out of the air and you're like, wow, that's something. And then Prescorn did nothing in the in the spring game. And he's coming off of, what, 600-yard receiving season at Memphis and he had six or seven touchdowns. There's some pieces there on the offensive side. And then you look to the the defensive side, and I mean, there were a couple of guys that popped. I thought John Saunders was, was or John Sanders or Saunders. Saunders is the uh, the late ESPN announcer. John Sanders. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought he was was really good. The transfer from Miami of Ohio. It's been a corner that they've moved to safety. The Sabatini um, kid did some good things too. Uh, the kid from the coast. Yeah, he he did. Name popped a couple of times. Um, Damari Walton, uh, you know, the, the transfer from uh, from Georgia Tech, there's a lot of experience there. They told us that, you know, he's had a ton of reps in the spring and maybe has even gotten a little bit worn down um, just because of the number of reps that he's had to cover because of a rotation. Um, Who are you talking the, about the, there? The the transfer from Georgia Tech. Yeah, Walton, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I didn't Walton. know if you are talking about Chris Moore. Yeah, I, I'm with you now. Okay. 
No, no, I'd, I'd switch over to the defensive side. So, obviously, we can't wait to see what Centurine Perkins looks like when he when he gets in. I mean, the, the thought is he steps in and he's a difference maker from day one, but that's a really high bar, right? I mean, you're asking a lot from a true freshman um, in the SEC. Um, there's going to be a huge emphasis on the, the star position, that kind of hybrid nickelback, linebacker, safety guy. Pete Golding's defense is going to ask a lot from that spot. Uh, they've got to develop a little more depth at corner. I mean, you've got you got a couple of guys, right? You got Prince and you got Walton, but you lose Miles Battle to Utah and Davison Igbenosin goes to what Ohio State. Um, so, isn't that where he went? I lost track of that. Wasn't he the kid that was like at Ohio State and Tennessee at the same time? Once they leave, I'm just like I I don't know. I just knew him as a. Uh, Partridge guy that him and Tashim Johnson, as soon as Partridge was not the guy, I was like, well, they lost those two. That seemed pretty cut and dry. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, that turned out to be the case. So, I mean, they got to get better there. They got to get a little bit better at the back end. I know they'd love to add a couple of pieces on the defensive side. You know, Lane told us, he said, look, we, we spent a lot of focus in terms of the early transfer portal on the offensive side. And now our focus shifts to the defensive side because we got to get better there. We got to get deeper there. We got to get more guys. And of course, the news that Ty Malone is going into the transfer portal. He's all, he only he, he was only part of one practice in the spring, one. And Pete Golding was excited to work with him. He's like, from a potential standpoint, there may not be anybody that's got more of it. Uh, and I'm looking forward to working with him. And that may not happen now. Are you insinuating that's a surprise? And I'm genuinely asking because I just remember when we did the whole – you remember John Rice Pumley? He was actually a two-sport guy here and played piano. Not a lot of people remember that. Their whole thing was, hey, he's going to do baseball, and then when he's done with baseball and football, we can work in. Like, Are you saying that Golding was a little surprised he only came over for one practice? Like, Was there supposed to be more there? Did you get the sense of that? I just figured that it was – from the again back – I don't cover the team anymore, but back then it was like you're a baseball guy, it's baseball season – like, I know football's footing the bill, but Kiffin seemed pretty clear on that. Do you think that they were anticipating him coming over a little more? I mean, to use your John Rice Plumley example, if you followed the way that it's worked at UCF, John Rice has, like, broken his neck to be as much a part of both as he can. Right? In I mean, you, the cameras. You, you see that nice video of him on the golf cart? I did. I did. And, you know, some of that is, is theatrical. It's really hard to play two sports. Yes, it is. Uh, it's even harder to play two sports well, and it's like impossible to be exceptional at both of them. But I was a little surprised that maybe Taiwan Malone had not worked harder to be part of both at the same time, because it's not like he's got a hundred at bats for the baseball team. He's got like 10. And, you know, if you're not cracking the lineup of an SEC team, are your MLB prospects that good? there's a chance that he could develop into an NFL defensive lineman. Um, and and so – but but the flip side of that is part of the reason that he chose Ole Miss was because Ole Miss said, we're going to let you play both. Right. We're not going to stand in the way of you doing that. And they to, – to their ever-loving credit, they didn't stand in the way of him doing that. And yet you still find him in the transfer portal at this point. Look, I, I don't know. I, and this is – I know absolutely nothing on this front. I'm just thinking out loud. Is this Taiwan Malone legitimately trying to go to a place where he can play both and be on the field? Or is this Taiwan Malone looking at this going and saying, you know what, I understand that football is the key, so now let me 
see if I can do anything on the NIL front to kind of sweeten the deal and, and stay put. I, I have no idea. And two years ago, that's not a thought that ever would have entered your mind. You'd be like, okay, guy's going to transfer. He's out. But now there's a business side to it, and you wonder if that's a play to try and get something on the NIL front. I, I don't know the answer to that, but we'll see. No, I'm with you because, I mean, you answered one of the questions I was going to ask as a follow-up. You mentioned the nugget about Golding saying he's got as much or as more potential than anyone else on the team. As seeing that news without knowing anything about it, I was like, maybe this is not a Golding fit. Like, again, I think he's a talented guy, right? He's a top 100 recruit. But the thing I kept going back to was like, man, if you couldn't get on the field with that defensive line last year, like, what, what what's going on there? Maybe it's the splitting time thing. I just – I don't know. And then once he hit the portal, my mind started going to, well, where's he going to go? Like – I'm not saying that no yeah. one's going to take him type of thing, but if he wants to do this two-sport thing, like where, where are you going that you have it better than you had it here, you know? I mean, the note that I wrote down from Taiwan Malone was one practice potential comma highest ceiling. I mean, that that's that was the note that I wrote from Pete Golding talking about time alone. Yeah, so that confirms it's not like, oh, Golding doesn't, you know, wants to get a different fit in there, which makes a, a lot more sense. I was just kind of going through the possibilities, but I'm fascinated to see how that actually ends up. I wanted to ask you a pre-scoring question, the tight end. You guys alluded to this on the broadcast. I can't remember exactly what you said, but you were talking about Trig and then bringing in another tight end. And there are some NFL people that I think think pre-scoring has a shot to be a pro. My uh, buddy from college, former roommate, is now an agent. One of the things after he kind of regrouped after the Orlando Brown thing, he started kind of focusing on recruiting for the next year, trying to figure out who he could potentially get his guys and surveying things. And one of the first people he asked me about from an Ole Miss standpoint was pre-scoring. He's like, what's up with this guy? People seem to be eye on him in NFL circles. That's a guy that's older um, I think he's got a kid. I think he's about to be married. And not that any of that really matters, but point being, like, he's in a different phase of life than your 19-year-old freshman. You guys seemingly, and maybe I was misinterpreting, kind of hitting out that him being a good influence on Michael Trigg in that room. Like, did you sense any of that at all? You know, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think it's possible that there's – a similar element to what we talked to Spencer Sanders and Jackson Dart. You, you've got somebody to to push you, and and maybe that's a good thing. So Charlie Weiss about Prescorn said he's kind of a do-it-all tight end. He's got size. He's got length. We could line him up on the ball, but we can also split him out. Um, 55 catches, 681 yards, seven touchdowns in 29 games played at Memphis. And the lion's share of that was in this past season, 2022. So I did the the Memphis-Arkansas State game. I think it was week two um, at, at Memphis. And his career numbers were basically non-existent at that point. And he, I think he had – it was either two or – he may have had three touchdown catches. He certainly had two touchdown catches in that game. And I kind of walked away from that like, wow, this guy looks good. There were two good tight ends in that game. Uh, Arkansas State had one, and I think – he transferred to Ohio State, had a really good year at uh, at Arkansas State last year. But I remember walking away from that game late late that night, going, "Man, that was that was two really good tight ends." And then you look up, and his numbers continue to be good throughout the course of the season. So, you know, I I mean, Ole Miss got no production from the tight end position a year ago, right? You Trig has the injury, Casey Kelly can't do enough for you in terms of stretching defenses. And so you rewind to Lane's first year and you think about what Kenny Yaboa did. I know he still hasn't blocked anybody, but he was a mismatch down the field. 
And so I think the tight end position is important to this offense. And so you got Priestcorn, who is a guy who has proven it at the American Conference level, and Trigg, who NFL guys are really intrigued with. And and so maybe and, – and that's why I went back to what I said earlier with, with Charlie Weiss about we're going to have five skill position players on the field, right? You got a quarterback, you got five offensive linemen. If that means two tight ends and two receivers, because we know that Quinshawn Judkins is one of those five. If it means three receivers and one tight end, if it means three tight ends and one receiver, we want to get the five best guys on the field that we think can make plays that can hurt a defense, and we don't really care what that looks like. Once we figure out who those five guys are, we'll scheme around that and try to take advantage of whatever the defense is giving us. Yeah, and tight end's an important position in that offense, to your point. They didn't have it in 2021 either, and when uh, Kiffin left FAU, you know, you had Harrison Bryan, who was a Mackey Award winner. That's clearly a position he values. They just haven't had that, and you mentioned the Yaboa aspect. He really did all of that in, like, four games. I've never seen a guy ride a good, like, first three, four games into a season, and then, like, if you actually look at the last five, it's kind of a nothing burger, and they weren't as dynamic offensively as a result in many of those games when they face better defenses. So the fact that they have two capable tight ends, I think, is important. But I was just curious if, like, you know, Trig, it's not an ability thing. It's kind of everything else. And I, I thought it was interesting they kind of brought in a guy who's probably 22, 23 years old at this point. You know, you don't but, really – But think about the two games where Yaboa really, really popped. He popped against Florida in the opener. Yep. And that's when, when Pitts was on the field for Florida. I mean, Elvis had no answer for Pitts that day. And he had a big game against Alabama. Yeah. And they missed him against LSU. They missed him and, and Elijah. That year was so strange, but you're right. So I don't know. They got some work to do in the uh in the portal. I'm interested to see kind of how the roster looks going into camp. Last thing I wanted to get to before I keep you here all night is the broadcasting side of things. You were mm-hmm. Mentioned at the top, you're like, I was busier this year, and you mentioned it was football because I was like, How the hell could you be busier than basketball? Like, where are you at from a broadcasting nationally standpoint? Like, I remember the last year I was at Super Talk, you were kind of starting to get a full, pretty full menu of basketball games, if I remember correctly. I mean, you do one or two a week. I imagine it's not really possible to do more than that. Has your basketball load kind of maxed out? What is that kind of like for you throughout the winter? So, 2015, I think it's 2015 or 2016 was my first year with ESPN, ESPN SEC Network. And it was kind of like a really slow build, right? It was, hey, we're going to use you for a couple of games, and then we use you for six or eight games. This was across basketball and and baseball. And then there was a little bit of football mixed in, whether it was like uh, an SEC Network Plus alternate channel game or – you know, a, a random one-off game in the American Conference or, or whatever. And you got an was Auburn never... game one year that was a big deal, if I remember correctly, wasn't it? Auburn somebody. Auburn Liberty. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I wanted to say Liberty, yeah. but I wasn't sure if I was correct. Turner Gill was still the coach at Liberty at the time. Yeah. Gus Malzahn was still the coach at Auburn at the time. It was the week before the Iron Bowl. Um, and that was in that year where I I, I did a lot. I mean, that was the – you did a lot of basketball, uh, right? Yeah, I, I did a lot of basketball. So I did that Auburn game on a Saturday. Flew home, got home Saturday night. So that, what, what would that have been, 2018 or 19? It's 19. Okay, so 2019. So that was the 2019-2020 year. That was my best year at, at ESPN. Uh, so I did an Auburn game on Saturday night for football during the, like, 
SEC Network alternate channel. It was one. It's it that next next to last weekend where there are a lot of crappy games and they had to fill people. So, but but I was thrilled. Um, did that? Flew home Saturday night. Got home at one thirty in the morning. Got with the family. We went to the airport Sunday morning and flew to the Bahamas. And I got to do Battle of Atlantis that year. So that was Thanksgiving week. I missed the Egg Bowl that. that year for for Ole Miss Radio. And it felt like, okay, this is really going the way it's going to go. We roll into 2020, had a big basketball schedule that year. That year, my contract had 20 basketball games, 20 baseball games. And for the first time, it had both a regional and a super regional written into the contract, okay. which was kind of – that was like – the baseball thing as it slowly built was like, okay, they're going to use me for postseason? Are they going to use me? And, and so I did a regional two or three years in a row. But I never could kind of qu- crack the nut on getting to the, the – the super regional because there are only eight broadcast teams that are doing that. There was a new coordinating producer at ESPN at the time, Matt Sanduli. He put Lance Cormier, the former Alabama pitcher and me together on the Oxford regional. We had a good weekend. It, it went well. And he called me that Monday. He's like, Hey, I'm going to use you on a super regional. It's like, awesome. Um, so that was the, the previous year. We did the Louisville East Carolina super regional. Louisville won it in two games. The following year, I had all of that written into my contract. And I was like, okay, this is great. This is this is the next step, and this is how it's supposed to progress. And then this little thing called COVID popped up, and the world yeah, it seemed came to ruin a lot of things for a lot of people. Um, ESPN had some layoffs shortly after that. There were changes. It was like building new relationships with people who were assigning games. The following year, I did like six basketball games and zero baseball games. None. It were just you discouraged up. by that, or were you pretty understood that, hey, the world's a shit show right now. Like, let's see when this passes and it becomes normal again. I mean, I, I understood it, but, yeah, I was discouraged because it was like I was – like I did 40 events last year for ESPN or 38 or whatever the number was. I, I was on track to do over 40 before baseball stopped. And it was like, well, I'd love to see this, you know, pick up kind of where it left off. And it didn't. That's when they started sending out the the live from home kits and the whole broadcasting yeah. from your home offense, uh, home office started. Uh, I didn't get one of those initially. They're like, hey, we're going to get you one. We're going to get you one. We're going to get you one. And then I didn't. And then the following year kind of came back and I did a little bit more. This, But this was a good year because this was kind of this academic year that we're moving toward the end of now. It was the first year where I had a football package, if you will. Now, it wasn't where you turn on your TV and it's on ESPN2 or ESPNU or even the SEC Network. It was ESPN Plus stuff. But I did 10 American Conference football games. And then the folks at Learfield, uh, Chris Elsel, who's a general manager there, David Kellum, who's a dear friend and a mentor and like a big brother to me, they were great. Um, they were like, look, if, if you've got weekends where you don't have TV assignments, we'd like you to still be part of the broadcast. Uh, Gary Darby stepped in and started doing the pre- and post-game show this year, and so I was able to do the sideline stuff for, I think I did six Ole Miss games. Uh, and it was I was fortunate with the way the schedule worked out, and they were great. John Darnell did some stuff on the sidelines this year. Brett Norsworthy, my buddy, so great to work with all those guys. So it was, it was kind of the best of both worlds to be able to still do Ole Miss radio when I was able to and yet have – close to a full season of football. And that's why I kind of said this was a, a good year for me. And then basketball kind of got off to a slow start, and then all of a sudden 
you know, from the last week of January through the last week of the regular season, it was it was crazy busy and had some great games too. Had some really really great games that were uh, were mixed in in that. So it it was uh, it was a fun year for me. And then I've done a few baseball games as well, probably half a dozen baseball games. At what point did you realize, like, I'll ask it this way, actually. So you start moving up and you're kind of starting to get assignments ESPN-wise. I know you've broadcasted a million things through the years, but all of a sudden when you put on the headset for that type of audience, for, like, the first time you did it, were you, like, pissing your pants? Did you Were you nervous at all? Like, what, what was the first broadcast <clears throat> at that level like? It was that Auburn game that you mentioned from a couple of years ago, the SEC Network alternate channel game where I had Auburn and Liberty. I mean, is that Auburn LSU? Of course not. But it's 3 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon on the SEC Network. And Hudson Mason, who has continued to advance, former Georgia quarterback, was the analyst that day. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a side story. We may be going too long. I guess there's no time limit on a podcast. but We don't um, have any hard breaks. Music won't start playing in your ear. So, go to Auburn on Thursday. I fly into Atlanta, drive to Auburn, spend Thursday night. We've got coaches' meetings on Friday, and we have kind of a crew dinner on Saturday night. And uh, we go to dinner, and I'm sitting there at dinner, and I'm like, I don't feel good. We've ordered, and I get up and I go to the men's room, and I throw up everything I think that is in my body. Like I'm green. I'm like, what is wrong with me? And so I go back to the table, drop a little cash on the table. I was like, Hey, I'm helping with dinner. I, I got to go. I call an Uber. We're staying out at uh, grand national, which is like 25 minutes from, and I'm like pressing my face against the window of the car, trying to cool off. I feel terrible. I'm hoping I don't throw up in the backseat of this Uber. I get back, I get in my hotel room, I take a shower, I throw up in the shower like four times. And I'm like, I have an SEC football game tomorrow. What am I going to do? Yeah, like this can't happen I, now. This can't be happening right this second. Thankfully, all my prep's done. And I just kind of lay there. And at like 2.30 in the morning, my mouth's so dry. And it's a huge hotel. And I go stumbling to the front desk and I get two blue Powerades. And you know how you know I've how done you've that been for sick. different reasons, but that that always hits the spot. But but you know everybody's been sick at some point, right? And so you, when you decide to put something into your system, you're like, how am I going to respond to this? And so like I just take a little bitty sip, and I just lay there for like five minutes. I'm like okay, I didn't throw that up, so I can take another sip. And then my mouth is so dry. I'm like, you know what? Screw it. And I just like chug a Powerade, and then I lay there for twenty minutes. It's like three in the morning. And I'm like, okay, I'm drinking the other one now because it tastes so good at this point. Somehow I wake up the next morning. I'm like, I got like some kind of a 24 hour bug ends up happening that it goes through my entire family. And we're going to the Bahamas the next day. And, and like everybody gets sick at some point while we're at battle for Atlantis. But I somehow made it through that. And I'm just like, I'm going to go on and my face is going to be green on, on television or whatever. I didn't eat anything that day, made it through the broadcast. That That's like a side story to go along with that, where I'm thinking, I finally got this opportunity and I'm going to get a random stomach bug 
and I'm going to have to call and be like, hey, is there somebody else that can do this game? Like, I'm not doing that. I don't care if I throw up in the booth. I'm doing the game. Do the game. But before it started, like 15 minutes before kickoff, you got the eagle flying around the stadium. You know, it seats 87,000. They're probably 78,000 that are there that day. And I had this moment where I looked out and I was like, I made it. Now, it's an SEC Network alternate channel game between Auburn and Liberty the next yeah, last weekend of the regular season. I didn't really make it, but I had this moment where I was like, I decided I wanted to do this when I was 16 years old and I was in high school. This is 22 years later, and I'm standing in a television booth at Jordan-Hare Stadium in Auburn, Alabama, doing a football game for SEC. Everything was worth it, and that was a really cool moment for me. Did it had it fully passed, or did you still feel like crap? It was okay. It was okay at that point. So you weren't like weak at the knees by that point. No, no, I I, I was not at that point thinking, oh my gosh, I hope there's a trash can because I may have to throw up somewhere close. It wasn't nerves. I mean, it was it was a bug. It was yeah, yeah, no, I'm not, yeah, exactly for like a stomach. Even went, Frank thankfully in like twelve hours. Um, but no, at, at that point, I was able to kind of step back and soak it in and. I didn't look like a corpse on television, um, you know, and I was able to just kind of step back and be like, this is what I've been trying to do. This is what I want to do. This is the validation that I need. Now, am I doing games on the SEC network on Saturdays now? No, I'm not. I, I hope to one day. Uh, I hope it continues. But the flip side of that is, and this may be more like Pollyanna than you want to hear, but it's like, I've proven to myself that I can do it. Yeah, you can like me or not like me. You can think I'm a good broadcaster or not. Whatever, that that's fine. I've proven to myself that I can do this. I believe I'm good enough to do it at a high level. If it doesn't work out now, it doesn't work out. I'm I couldn't be happier. I've got a, a wonderful wife who's successful in what she's doing. I've got three well-adjusted kids. I get to be a dad. I get to talk on the radio every afternoon. I get to do a bunch of TV stuff. If it doesn't go farther than this, will I be disappointed? Sure. But I'm at a place where I'm finally kind of content with it. And I'm, I'm proud of what I've accomplished. I want to continue to grow. I think I am growing as a broadcaster. I hope I get more opportunities. But I have gotten to a point where it's like, you know, if it doesn't work beyond this, that's okay too. Which is a very great headspace to be in where you're just content where things are. Not that you're not driven, but you're like, okay, like this is this has been a good ride no matter what type of thing. At what point did you stop getting nervous? Because I remember when I started doing radio, you guys didn't really have a crash course. I had zero radio experience. And I just show up in the studio <laughs> and the microphone's on. I'm like, like, for the first like three weeks, I was like, how in the, why am I allowed to do this? Like, I don't understand. Like, why, why, why did so, like, why am I on the air? I don't understand. I had no experience doing it. And then I probably pivoted too far in the other direction. Where I was like, you know what? I don't give a shit. I'm just going to start saying what I think. <laughs> I don't care if it sounds polished. I'm just going to do this damn thing. But for you, through a broadcasting standpoint, at what point did the start of a game and you not being in your own, not that you're always in your own head, but not having to like think through things and it becomes second nature. How long did that take? If that makes any sense. I've kind of always been comfortable with a microphone. Um, you know, I, I think I probably inherited some of that. My dad has a great voice and has, you know, always been a good public speaker. Uh, and, and so maybe some of that is, I don't know. 
I didn't inherit four, four speed. So maybe there's some genetics there in, in terms of being comfortable in that situation. I, I've kind of prided myself on, it's like, you know, the crazier things get around me or the bigger the stage gets, the calmer I'm, I'm able to get in that moment. And, and so it becomes a thing where it's not like, I mean, you, you, you've heard broadcasters say, you know, if you don't get some butterflies before a, a, a big game, you know, you're probably in the wrong profession. And I guess there's something to that, but it's like, okay, I'm prepared. I've done the work that I need to do leading up to this. I wasn't a great student. I was terrible at homework and being prepared. That makes two of us, but, pal. Well, but but I have found like a level of study and a level, level of pre- preparation for broadcast that I never found in school. Like I found, I find genuine I don't know if joy is the right word, but I enjoy the process of getting ready so that we've got storylines. I've got all the information that I need. I'm prepared for this and ready to go. Now let's just let the game happen and, and react. And it's funny. It's like the bigger the game, the better the atmosphere, the easier the broadcast becomes. Really? So, yeah. And, and, it, and it's like, I know that's a little counterintuitive, but it's like if I'm doing – Ole Miss Northwestern State in basketball. I probably didn't put as much time into it as I should have, but I know I can just kind of get through it. Right. Like I've got enough information that I can kind of fake my way through it and nobody's really watching and nobody really cares. When I did um, the Missouri Mississippi State game, it was yeah. a Tuesday night game, eight o'clock tip in Columbia this year. Stakes were really high. Mississippi State was trending in the right direction. Missouri had been really, really good at home. I was prepared. Had a good broadcast partner that night. Um, we had good storylines going into the ball game. Great atmosphere. Loud crowd. The whole deal. It's like that's so much easier because you, you got more to rely on, right? You're, you're working with a good crew. Um, you have got – and that's not knocking other crews along the way. Um You've got the atmosphere that's built in to help tell the story. You've got great storylines in the game. And and so you don't worry as much about all of the, have I got enough stuff to fill? It's like the game is going to dictate this. And it, it's almost like that makes it a little bit easier. Um, you know, doing Ole Miss Memphis on a Tuesday night at, at Swayze with, you know, 3,000 people in the stands, 2,200 people in the stands, that's fine. I enjoy that. But getting – Jack Doherty against Paul Skeens in game one for a guy that's got 104 strikeouts and Ole Miss has got its back against the wall. There are going to be 10,000 people in the stadium. That's awesome. And, and, and in some ways, it's a whole lot easier. Now, the stakes are higher. If, if you screw up, there are a whole lot more people that see it and more people that care and more people that are going to tell you you're, you're a moron for saying something stupid. But it's like you elevate your game based on the stakes being higher. Was that a tease? Are you doing the game Friday night? Yeah, I'm doing Friday, Sunday this weekend. Consummate pro. Always be teasing in this industry. One of the things, though, that you mentioned, like me, hate me, whatever. One of the things that cracks me up about announcers, TV announcers in particular, get the most irrational hate like that is on the planet. Like the people that like are like, I hate Joe Buck. And it's like, well, why do you actually hate Joe Buck? And they don't really ever have a good reason. It's probably because he called an amount of games that their team lost. And like the last thing people want to hear when their team is frust- like losing is hearing the announcer reiterated, even though it's their job to do it. 
Have you reached that level yet? Do you get random hate after like a game? Like, do people tweet you? What do we need to do to get you to that level where it's like, I hate this Richard Cross guy. I have no reason why, but God forbid he ever get on my TV screen again. Two things, both involving Mississippi State, but for different reasons. Generally speaking. State people like you on TV, though. That, that I was going to say, generally speaking, Mississippi State people don't like me on Sports Talk Mississippi, sure, generally sure. speaking. I, I mean, I, that's painting with a broad brush. I don't yes. think everybody hates me. But there are a lot of Mississippi State, oh, he's just the old Miss guy. He's a homer. He's you know, whatever. But I've done enough Mississippi State games, baseball and basketball, and I think I've taken a level of professionalism and preparation into those games and, and and I really try hard not ever to make a game about me. Like, I think there are a lot of announcers that do that. I'm not going to call any names, but 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 they think it's about them. I can think of a few. I, I still think it's about the game, and it's about the players on the floor. And so I try to do a good job, and, and I feel like I've done a good enough job for enough Mississippi State games over the last decade that there are people like, I really can't stand Richard Cross on the radio, but I like it when he does our TV games. So that's – the, the first part of the story. The, the second part of it is I did a Mississippi State NIT game like six years ago. They were playing Nebraska. Okay. Mississippi State and Nebraska had played a preseason charity game. And I didn't – like I was trying to make a reference to that game, but I didn't finish the thought. And there is a national broadcaster who's got strong ties to Nebraska and the Big Ten. It's Kevin Kugler, who does a a ton of stuff for Westwood One and the Big Ten Network, and he's now doing some NFL games for Fox and whatever else. He's a good announcer. Does a great job. And he called me out on Twitter for being unprepared for a game. Oh, really? And I never and I never responded to him, but it was because of he's like. You would think the uh, play-by-play announcer would have done enough homework to know that these two teams actually played each other in August in a charity event. I was like, jackass? You're <laughs> pretending like I didn't know that? I, I, Something happened in the game, and it caused me not to finish my thought. And you're right. I screwed that up. But you, of all people, going after a play-by-play announcer for a single mistake over the course of it, like, what what? Are, so, so yes, there are always people that are going to call out your mistakes, and they're just that's not it, right? a fan. I mean, that's someone who works in your industry. I was about to ask a follow up. Does that happen, or is that a one off? It's the only time it's ever happened to me. I was about to say, like sports writers are almost cultish, where like you could shoot a guy and then, but not his fault. Shouldn't have been standing there. Like there's never like a ton of like calling each other out in terms of like doing the work and stuff like that. Particularly like an innocuous comment like that, you'd think that guy of all people would know how it goes. And you have yeah, a break in the game and all that. And, and if I ever see Kevin Kugler, if I ever meet him, which, which I haven't, and again, I think he's incredibly accomplished. He does College World Series for, for Westwood. One of them, like, hey, Kevin, you do a really balls. good job. You, you do a really good job, and I've listened to you a ton. I got to be honest with you. I lost a lot of respect for you when in a random NIT game six years ago, you decided to criticize me on Twitter because I didn't finish a thought on something you're like, I can't believe he's not prepared enough to know that these two teams have faced each other already this year. They didn't even face each other in the regular season. It was a charity game to raise money for like a tornado. I'm like, come on, man. So 
I don't know. That's a that's a long way of saying yes. There are people that are going to point out any mistake that you make. And look, I'm, I'm human. Most play-by-play broadcasters are human. They're going to make mistakes. Tom Hart occasionally mispronounces a name. Carl Ravitch occasionally – well, never mind. Bad example. Um, Al Michaels was not very good on Thursday Night Football this year. I didn't call Al Michaels out and be like, Look, I know you're a Hall of Fame broadcaster, but, man, you're really mailing it in here on these Amazon Prime games on Thursday night. I mean, it's hard. And you do the best that you can, and as long as you're prepared, you walk away from it going, you know, I could have done this, this, and this better, and hopefully that's going to make me better down the line. But I did the best that I could in the moment. So, I was going to make a ravage joke earlier when you were talking about during the COVID year not getting as many assignments. I was going to ask you if you felt like it was a missed opportunity that if your son Obi was older, you could just have him on the broadcast and take up half an inning talking to your son. That might be a nice selling point for you to get more broadcast time. What was that? Was that the the 18 Super or 18 Regional where it just became the ravage nepotism show for happening? People lost their minds about that. So that was Sam Ravage and Ben McDonald doing the Regional in Oxford. I was actually oh, Carl in, calls it. It's the other way. You're right. You're right. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Carl was in Bristol or, or right. wherever. Okay. I was doing the Conway, South Carolina regional uh, with um, oh my buddy um, Jay Jay Powell, who's yeah. a part time color analyst for Mississippi State Radio and former JA baseball, baseball coach. coach. Probably the highlight of his career. Yeah. Um, so Jay and I were doing the uh, the Coastal Carolina regional. That was Coastal Carolina and Washington and Connecticut and LIU Brooklyn. Those were the four teams in that one. Okay. So, but I had the old Miss game on, like in the background, and I was like, what, "What's going on here?" And Borky was texting me. He's like, "You're not going to believe what's happening right now." But <laughs> I went back and watched it later. I was like, well, "That was that was something." Uh, the crazy thing was uh, Ben McDonald had no idea that was happening. He's like, "What are you doing? Are we supposed to get on camera?" He's like, "No, I'm just doing this thing." He's like. What, what what thing? Oh well, Carl's gonna. Okay, sure. Guys built up enough sweat equity at ESPN. One of the last things I have for you before I keep you all night is, in the, one of the things that's interesting to me is like, people. Another criticism of broadcasters like this guy didn't actually know anything about our team. It's like actually, if you know anything about it, they have to do an insane amount of prep where they actually, in some ways, probably know your team better than you do, because it's like a sports writer. Like for a random Tuesday Arkansas game, if I was really fired up about my job, I guess I could dive into two hours of a random basketball game, whether Ole Miss was in the tournament or not. But you guys have to do it. You guys have to dive in. You know, when you get on bigger broadcasts, you can go talk to the coaches before and all that. But like, do you find that as a weird criticism? And I guess to package into like a weird question is, like, is there an art to preparing for a basketball game versus a football game? How do you kind of handle the pregame prep for different sports? Football is way more involved uh, just because you've got so many players on on so many teams. Um, And, you know, like for me this year doing American conference games. So, I mean, I'm I'm prepping for Temple against South Florida. Um, The first game I did last year was Thursday night, opening weekend, South Carolina State at UCF. So there were some cool storylines. I mean, that was John Rice Plumley's first game at UCF. You know, there's some neat stuff there, and it's a Thursday night game, and you know, a decent audience. And and interestingly enough, there's probably more crossover Ole Miss fans that watch that game because of John Rice Plumley than normally you would have. Yeah. So you know, that was that was cool. And then I do USF Howard in week two, and then I've got Memphis and Arkansas State, and 
So all of those are kind of starting from, from zero. Whereas if I was doing SEC games every weekend, it's like there's all this institutional knowledge that's built in. Uh, that doesn't make the, the prep work any less, but there's more familiarity there. So um, for an American conference game, let's say I've got, uh, I got Tulsa SMU, which is a game I did this year in Tulsa. I mean, you know, I'm, I've, I've got the assignment on Sunday. I kind of start doing, you know, what happened last weekend start building my charts, building the boards. You, you got to put all the, the basic stuff on there, you know, names and heights and weights and positions and statistics. And then you spend a big part of the rest of the week trying to add to that based on game notes and stories you read and previous broadcasts and game films. So it's probably, you know, a couple of hours on Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday are pretty big prep days. I'm probably trying to grab – you know, three or four hours for each of those days. So by the time you get on a plane on Friday morning to go wherever it is that you're going, you probably got 20 hours invested in preparing for that game. And then it's the travel and coaches meetings, which were largely Zoom. So that was kind of the, the leading up to. Or you visit with the coaches on site on Friday afternoons after their practices. And then, you know, you got game day and then traveling back home and turn around and do it again the, the next week. Basketball, a little less because you get fewer players. I mean, you're talking about, you know, 10 players on two rosters. Probably if you're doing it justice, you're spending mm, I don't know, somewhere between five and 10 hours getting ready for a game. Now, it's not like that for every game. And as you get deeper into the season and you've seen teams. So, like, you know, when I've got Missouri, Texas A&M in – the last weekend of February, and I've had Texas A&M twice, and I've had Missouri three times, that's kind of easier prep work because I'm kind of building on the, the prep that I've done in, in previous games and trying to add some stuff and updating stats and, and all that good stuff. But uh, so, so there's less for basketball just because you're talking about less people and a, a shorter ball game. It's, um, but it's a week-long process to get ready for a, a football game to do it right. Last actual thing I have for you, one of the things that was interesting to me was the uh, – uh, what's his name? Is it Skip Carey that left the Braves to go to the Cardinals? Mm-hmm. Tom Hart's name got thrown in the mix. I know you two are friends, and I he came by a couple times when we were doing radio. Seems like a nice guy. I liked him the couple times he came by. I think he, we did a remote at like the business school thing one time, and he stopped by. But his name <laughs> was thrown in the mix for that. And there's very different like types of broadcasting gigs when you kind of make it to that level um like i remember when i did the reds internship tom brenneman was there at the time uh spells his name like an asshole eventually became a meme i think he's t-o-h-m t-h-o-m have you ever thought about yeah, changing your name? yeah <laughs> like he had done and i don't know the guy at all but one of the things that was apparent to me very quickly is he does international nfl broadcasts and he kind of felt that job is like a secondary fallback. So he was like never really in the clubhouse, never did a ton of pregame work. And apparently that was not like, I would say, common with other broadcasters. Like I, even when I covered uh, the the road teams, which is part of that internship, you would see some of the broadcasters kind of in the clubhouse for the game, you know, if they needed something in particular. Tom, no shot, never happened. Now his dad, Marty, was in there all the time, mostly just to crack jokes and, you know, speak with old friends. But one of the things I thought about when that happened was there's so many different types of jobs you have this gig now where you can do radio. You're based in Mississippi. You're doing all kinds of different stuff with ESPN. 
Has a job like that where you're with the team every day ever interested you? Like, I'm not like holding your feet to the fire and saying, would you ever take that? Have you ever thought about that? Is that something that would ever interest you? So, I mean, the, the interest me, of course. I mean, if if the opportunity ever presented itself to to be a lead announcer for a major league baseball team or, or for an NBA franchise, and I'd be less interested probably in an NBA team just because I'm not as big an NBA guy. But, I mean, let's just say that somewhere along the way, um, Pete Pranica uh, with the, the Grizzlies decided he was yeah. going to do something else or retired or whatever, and that opportunity presented itself. Obviously, that would be incredibly attractive. You know, the thing for me is we're in a really comfortable place in Oxford. My kids are happy. Uh, my wife owns a, a women's clothing store on the square. Our family is here. Her parents, my mom, um, we love it here. And and so the idea of picking up our family and relocating to Cincinnati or to Atlanta or to Dallas or wherever it might be, it, it, it's really hard. And I think that would be a difficult decision if it ever presented itself. The really cool thing about being with ESPN or if I was with Fox or whatever is it doesn't matter where you live. Like if you're doing games remotely – I mean, you can be Joe Buck and live in St. Louis and you're doing a national game, you know, Monday night football and you go get on a plane. Um, I got an hour drive to the airport. I mean, it's an hour and four minutes from my driveway till I'm walking through security at the, at the Memphis airport. Um, if I lived on the wrong side of Atlanta, it might take me longer than that to get to Hartsfield. So, you know, the drive to the Memphis airport isn't so bad. Um, but our roots are really deep here. I mean, I've, I've lived in Oxford for 30 two years now. Um, and, and so I don't really have a lot of interest in leaving. Um, if that opportunity ever presented itself, it's something that we would, we would have to look at really hard as a family. Um, because that would be, it'd be really hard for my kid. I mean, I've got a, a daughter who's in, in seventh grade, about to be an eighth grader and is involved, you know, with the, the dance team and the, you know, whatever else. And a son who's 10 and is really happy and doesn't like change a whole lot. And a five-year-old who kind of runs the whole show. I mean, and so, you know, I mentioned Jane's business a second ago. I mean, all of those things would factor in really heavily. I mean, if somebody wants to send me a, a job offer with a, you know, $2 million a year salary, we'll talk. I mean, we'll, we'll figure something out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it would be hard to, uh, to leave. I'm, I'm really fortunate, Rippy. I mean, I, Super Talk has been so incredibly good to me. And to be able to do what I do and love it five days a week, you know, 52 weeks a year, and still also be able to do the broadcasting stuff that I really enjoy and hope continues to grow, it's a it's a really cool spot that I'm in. Uh, and, and I'm thankful for that. It's not lost on me that I'm very, very fortunate to, to be able to do this and to have uh, an employer that allows me, you know, that, that says there's there's value in you doing these TV games, and, and we want you to continue to grow in that. Um, but to give me the flexibility to do both, that that's really cool. Um, you know, Tom's deal is different. I mean, he's based in Atlanta, and right. the Braves' opportunity would have been huge for him. And I'm, I'm sure Brandon Godin's going to do a good job. I think Tom would have been exceptional uh, in that job. Um, I don't know if I if I really answered that question. Um, I, you know, I, I have had 
I've had two opportunities and, and I don't want to pretend like it's more than it was, but I've had two times where there has been someone from an athletics department at another SEC school reach out and ask if I was interested in interviewing for the lead play-by-play job. Really? And it was, it was, it was two really, two really good ones. Um, and I was incredibly flattered and humbled that they would think enough of the work that I've done to say, Hey, we'd like to talk to you about this. Is it something you'd be interested in? Would you be willing to interview for this? And both times it just felt like the timing wasn't right to kind of the the stuff that I mentioned a second ago with, with Jane and the kids to pick up and say, Hey, let's move to place a or place B. Um, even though they would have been great opportunities and, in, in both places, they hired really, really talented people uh, who are where they need to be. And I think I'm where I need to be. So, but th- the fact that that has happened a couple of times is also, it's, it's validating. And, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful for that. No, well said. You answered it. And then the last random sidebar, the airport thing sucks. I moved from Dallas where, yes, it's kind of a hassle to get to DFW, but just to be there and be able to fly direct anywhere in the country. And then I lived in Uptown where they have the other just smaller side airport in Love Field, which is way easier to navigate. And you can just hop on a plane there to where now I got to drive an hour, probably connect if I'm trying to go somewhere other than like Dallas. Like, man, this is yeah. first world problem. This is kind of a bummer. I really loved, yeah. loved living in one of the you know three busiest airports in the country. That was a nice luxury. I mean, I'm an American Airlines guy, so it means I'm either Me going to Dallas or Charlotte for everywhere I go. Um, but it's okay. I mean, you know, it works when, when you get those when you get those segments, I guess you get more airline points along the way. I got a sell a selling point before I let you go. You mentioned contract lanes. Do you need an agent? I got a guy. You know, I've talked to. I, I do not have an agent. Um, I have explored that a few times along the way, um, and it just hasn't ever really worked out whether it either made sense for them or made sense for me uh, so sure if you got a guy that can uh, can help with the workload i'm in richard cross delta sports group news his client he uh portner negotiated the largest signing bonus for an offensive lineman in nfl history i think he can do the same thing with the broadcaster so welcome to the delta sports group family i'll have those people my people send the contract over to your people congrats on hiring an agent but uh that was all I had for you as we uh, approach 11 o'clock at night. I appreciate the time, man. It was great to catch up, and uh, I'll see you in 2025. Always good catching up, Rip. All right, and that was Richard Cross. That'll do it for our show today. Appreciate his time coming on the pod. We'll talk to him in 2025, as we discussed. But uh, we'll be back at it with Colin and I on Sunday after this LSU series, I suppose. And then i got some other stuff in the works for you uh, as we move forward into uh, baseball season and the summer. Thanks for your listening. As always, y'all have a safe and happy weekend. And we're all on Monday.